Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. House Republicans finally have everything they want. Control of Congress, a Republican president, and a health care plan. So why, as they head to a vote today, is the bill so disliked and the party so divided? And a view from the scene of yesterday's deadly attacks in London. It's Thursday, March 23rd. Thanks, Senator Burr. Uh, good morning. We start back in the summer of 2009. The current tax treatment of health care, which is a relic of World War II, discriminates against the self-employed, against the unemployed, and against those people who do not get health coverage at their jobs. This may have worked in America when everybody had the same job throughout their lives and throughout their careers. That's not the America we have today. Nearly a year before President Obama signed his plan for reforming American health care, a 39-year-old up-and-coming congressman, Paul Ryan, introduce a Republican plan to overhaul the same system. You see, we already spend twice as much per person on health care in America than all the other industrialized countries. The answer is take the money we're already spending and spend it far more efficiently, far more effectively to reflect the dynamics of the 21st century so that the center of this system is not politicians and bureaucrats making the decisions. The center of this system is patients and their doctors making the decisions. But... Back then, Democrats had control of everything. And it was their vision of health care that was enacted. Obamacare is a cancer in our government, and we're going to rip it out. Almost as soon as it passed, Republicans voted to repeal it more than 60 times. And every time, they failed. So they waited for nearly seven years. And then, last night and again this morning, I spoke with President-elect Donald Trump, and I congratulated him on his great victory. In a single night, we talked about the work ahead of us. Everything changed. And the importance of bringing this country together. Paul Ryan would now seem to have everything he needed back in 2009. So why, as the House votes today on the Republican health care plan, is its fate so uncertain? Wait, so where, where are you? You know, they have these funny, in the Senate press gallery, they have five phone booths. So it's the idea that you can go and have like a private conversation. And there are landlines in there. Is this like an old wooden affair? Yeah. I reached my colleague Jennifer Steinhauer in a phone booth in the U.S. Capitol. Jennifer, I just want to, first of all, hello. <laughs> Thanks for Hi. coming on because I know it's an incredibly busy day on the Hill. My pleasure. Talk to me about how House Republicans are getting used to the idea of 
being in charge? So House Speaker Paul Ryan likes to say, we've got to stop being the party of opposition. We've got to be a bold alternative party, a proposition party. And be the party of proposition and be the party that runs things. We need to find common ground where we can find it to advance the nation's interests. And we can do so. And this has actually been quite a difficult transition for a lot of House Republicans to make. Roughly two-thirds of the House Republican conference has never served under a Republican president. They are trained and schooled, and some ran on the concept of running against Democrats and the Obama agenda. So now they've got a Republican president who ostensibly shares their agenda to do what? Repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And it's just the jury's really out where they can pull it off. Jennifer, I think this might be best if we break this down in terms of teams. Can you roughly give me the names of three, maybe even four teams here among the House Republicans and who their key players are at the moment? There's obviously the key player is, is Paul Ryan and the majority leader, Kevin McCarthy. There's a leadership team, and their team is full of the Republican conference, not enough to pass the bill, but a large swath of members from all across the country who've been aching to repeal Obamacare. Mm-hmm. The president of the United States came to us and said, we all made a promise to the American people, and we need to keep our promises. And we keep our promise, and the people will reward us. If we don't keep our promise, it will be very hard to manage this. Then team two would be the super conservatives. Welcome, Senator. What's wrong with this bill? I think it's uh, basically Obamacare light. Who would like to go back to a time pre-Obamacare or who would like to modify Obamacare down to its most bare bone? We do not agree with the fundamental three or four things that Ryan has. Subsidies, taxes, mandates, and insurance bailout. That's Obamacare. We don't want that. Then you have a group of so-called moderates. In my state, I have 700,000 people who were uh, included in the Medicaid expansion and probably about a total of 1.1 million people who have who now have coverage. I want to understand how these people are going to be impacted. And at this point, uh, those questions have not been answered satisfactorily for me. That are concerned about how their states will be affected and constituents in their districts and how this will possibly punish them in their reelection efforts. Mm-hmm. And you need the vast majority of all those teams. To get this bill passed. Do. Yes. So, Jennifer, let's talk about these factions in a little more detail, starting with Paul Ryan. Why did Ryan create such an unpopular health care plan? What the House Republicans decided to do was try to go ahead and push this thing through, trying to fulfill the basic agenda of repealing the Affordable Care Act. And they didn't take the time and energy to build a broad coalition off Mm. of the Hill. Doctors don't like it. Nurses don't like it. Mm -hmm. The hospital association is actively pushing against it. And insurers have been lukewarm, if not negative. On top of which, you have all kinds of traditional Republican groups, Heritage, Club for Growth, these groups that give financial support to members in elections that don't like the bill because they think that it's not going to... um, improve insurance premiums, and they think, at least in the short term, it'll increase insurance and premiums, which they think will be difficult for Republicans trying to run for re-election in the House and the Senate, and ultimately President Trump. So you've got conservative groups. Obviously, you have Democrats and all liberal groups. You have professional groups against it. There's no coalition there, and that's just really hard when you're trying to pass something as difficult as any type of health care bill. Okay, so let's talk about how the opposition among House Republicans is breaking down. Let's 
begin with Republicans like Mark Meadows. Who is Mark Meadows? And Donald Trump and I are not at odds. We want to make sure that we repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something that drives down health care costs. Mark Meadows is a conservative guy for North Carolina. And this doesn't do it. He's in a very Republican district who's reflecting the views of a lot of hardcore Republicans who would like to see far less government role, certainly in the health care system. And I would count him as somebody, which is not to, um, by the way, dismiss his understanding of policy or his intellect, but he is among a group of lawmakers whose brand, if you will, is to vote no. It is time that the representatives start representing the people that they were elected to uphold and protect. They just like to be in opposition. They loved being in opposition, obviously, to Democrats and obviously to President Obama. But mm-hmm. they've also relished being in opposition to the establishment leaders of their party. The government this, the government that, the government. When do we start focusing on the people? Some of them tried to get rid of Speaker Boehner, and they ultimately succeeded. Some of them have even voted against the Speaker. Um, in previous years, they they just love being the opposition. It's our position in the House Freedom Caucus that this uh, plan, the current plan, doesn't go far enough. They give themselves a name, right? Well, a core group of them is called the Freedom House Freedom Caucus, and they do meet, and they meet, and they have their own rules and their own um, peculiar, uh, specific ways of voting together, and when they blow is a block and when they don't vote is a block. They have uh, a weekly meeting called Conversations with Conservatives, where they invite the media in to discuss various issues. It's catchy. Yes. They usually serve Chick-fil-A, sometimes pizza. (laughs) So they've tried very hard to be a relevant thorn in the side of um, the speaker, and they've often succeeded. So what do Freedom Caucus members like Congressman Meadows say about this particular Republican health care bill? Oh, it doesn't do enough to save the government money. It still has too many mandates. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, you ask, you know, what does a House Freedom mm-hmm. Caucus member want? It's kind of hard to know because they move the goalposts and usually vote no anyway. And this is the, the, the Lucy football situation that John Boehner would get into where he would listen and he would try to do some things to appease them. And often they would just vote against him anyway. So when you are a block, you have the power of the vote. One individual member, not so powerful. Voting together, powerful. So... Then there's a congressman like Charlie Dent. Uh, what, what's going to happen with this health care law is this. Parts of it need to be repealed. Parts of it need to be replaced. Parts of it need to be overhauled and reformed. Who is Charlie Dent? And other parts will be maintained. He would probably describe himself as a center-right Republican from Pennsylvania who has constituents who are obviously enrolled in Obamacare. And he would like to repeal the law, as most Republicans would, but he wants to do it in a way that is not particularly fully on board with everything that Paul Ryan wanted to do. So he wants to reflect the needs of his state, and that would be something that protects people who are in the Medicaid program currently, and that has structured in a way that if you are losing your health care insurance, the tax credits are sufficient particularly for groups of older Americans who are too young to qualify for Medicare but have low enough incomes that they've been able to benefit from some of the Medicaid programs. And these lower-income Americans who are not quite Medicare eligible are a huge concern for a lot of Republicans. So President Trump met with many of these moderate House Republicans on Tuesday. And usually the power of a president in this case might be to issue threats and cajole, but these are moderates and they may not really care and their voters may not really care what President Trump 
may threaten or not threaten them to do. So what do you think President Trump's message to this particular group is? When President Trump met with the so-called Tuesday group, which are a group of, uh, they call themselves center-right of moderate Republicans and others, he mostly listened to their concerns. He didn't try to arm twist. It's different than how it was in the morning when he came to the Capitol and really pressed members in a conference-wide meeting, kind of made vague threats of primary challenges and really cajoled, begged, you know, in his way to vote for the bill. This was much mm-hmm. more listening. The problem with that method is that President Trump, by all accounts of people who've met with him, does not get into the weeds of policy. So these very specific complaints they were making may not have resonated with him. And, you know, some of these members, Trump won their state, sure, won their district, but they Mm -hmm. did better than he did in their district Mm -hmm. or their state. And when a president has, what, a 37% approval rating, that's not necessarily a scary hammer. It's just a hammer. It's a hammer. So we talked about these conservatives who just can't get behind this. And then we've talked about these moderates who just can't get behind this. If you had to say of Trump that he was a member of one of these factions, where would you put him? I can't put him anywhere because he still continues to campaign as a populist. And he fills his cabinet with conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. And then he sends out a budget that's neither. (laughs) Right. So he's, he's... when people say Trump Republican, that will mean something at some point, really definitive. Just like we had Reagan Democrats, Trump Republicans, it'll have a meaning. We're not quite there yet. What? Do, what no Republican can define him. He's defining them. And what team is Donald Trump on? Donald Trump just wants to win. He's not interested in the names of the players or the jerseys. He just wants to see the scoreboard light say Trump won. We are going to repeal and replace Horrible, disastrous Obamacare. The bill that I will ultimately sign, and that will be a bill where everybody's going to get into the room and we're going to get it done. We'll get rid of Obamacare and make health care better for you and for your family. And you know, make no mistake. Republicans up here on the Capitol Hill are dying to have a unified conservative agenda with the president of the United States. They want this marriage to work. They want this marriage to work. They just need their partner to engage a little more. More communication, Michael. Like a good marriage. Exactly. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Jennifer, thank you very much. Good luck. Of course. The Republican bill needs 216 votes to pass today. On Wednesday night, 148 Republicans had said they would likely support it. 27 had said they would not. And 62 were undecided, had concerns, or had not said how they'd vote. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Facebook. It's been 25 years since lawmakers passed comprehensive internet regulations. But the internet has changed a lot since then, and it's time for an update. That's why Facebook supports updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, like protecting privacy, fighting misinformation, reforming Section 230, and more. See their progress on key issues and what's next at about.fb.com regulations. Just after 2.30 this afternoon, terror returned to the streets of London. 
In the first stage of a two-pronged attack, a car ploughed into pedestrians on Westminster Bridge. The car travelled round the corner, crashing into railings outside the Houses of Parliament, where the driver, apparently armed with two knives, attacked a policeman before being shot by armed officers. Both the policeman and his assailant died. So, you know, we heard about it when we were in our offices and, you know, I immediately grabbed my bike, I cycled down there and I was there before three o'clock. I mean, this happened around 2.40. My colleague Katrin Benhold lives in London and is reporting on Wednesday's attack. I talked to eyewitnesses who were describing sort of people littered across the Westminster Bridge and then that one person who'd been, who'd been killed um, very near the railings itself. Uh, there was a group of students who, you know, three of whom, from France actually, three of whom were injured, and one woman who, who was believed to have fallen or plunged into the Thames and is very severely injured. You know, the thing that I'm most struck about is actually the stoicism. You know, the sort of World War II motto that mm. was born during German bombardments and the Blitz, you know, the whole kind of keep calm and carry on, which has defined Britons ever since. It's kind of a caricature and it's such imperfect, but it was really unimpressive display today. Um, after the first initial panic had subsided, people were just getting on with it. And there was... Um, you know, one woman, for example, who owns a newsstand, uh, which has been in the ownership of her family for nearly 100 years, Kirsten Hurl, was telling me that she pretty much saw the car careering across the cycle line and into the railings of, of Parliament mm. right underneath Big Ben. And, uh, you know, I asked her how she felt about it. You know, she was the one who called the emergency service. Wow. I said, were you panicked? Were you afraid? And she said, no, none of the above. She said, I lived through the IRA. So there's a sense in the city that has lived through so much already that they need to pull together now and, and get on with it. And it was, I was struck myself by receiving an email from Parliament itself this evening that the House of Lords and the House of Commons will sit as normal tomorrow. So I think the mood is defiant. There's a sense of solidarity and Londoners are basically saying we're standing together. And, you know, the Prime Minister Theresa May said today the attacker struck at the heart of the city. And it's true. He did get pretty close to the center of British government, which I think was the shock to a lot of people. It was right there, you know, the symbols of power and pride. The car that went down, several people on the bridge crashed into the railings right underneath Big Ben. I mean, there is no more symbolic monument in London. It's like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Right. It's the first thing you think of when you think of London. Uh, you know, the one thing I was quite struck by, because we've been focusing on Brexit and these kind of very politically polarizing times we're in right now. Um, and today was a day for all its strategy that actually humanized the kind of center of government here, which has been, you know, the kind of Westminster hmm. is a bit a byword for the distant um, elites who don't understand ordinary people, quite in the same way that Washington, D.C. probably is in the United right, States. Right, right. And today, just the images of a member of parliament, Tobias Elwood, uh, actually trying to resuscitate this policeman who's been stopped, you know, with blood on his face and his hands, hands on, you know, a human being, um, with various MPs giving their accounts of the scene because they were right there and experienced it. I think it was a moment, and it probably won't last, um, they, they rarely do, but it was a moment where the country did come together and where divisions that have been on such display in recent weeks and months were actually buried under that sort of sense of solidarity. I thought that was quite striking as well. Hmm. Tomorrow morning, Parliament will meet as normal. We will come together as normal. And Londoners and others from around the world who have come here to visit this great city will get up and go about their day as normal. And we will all move forward together. 
never giving in to terror. British police are calling this a terrorist attack, the most serious in London since the deadly subway bombings in July of 2005. British Prime Minister Theresa May has said that the attack was carried out by just one man, the assailant killed by police outside of Parliament. Here's what else you need to know today. On his third and final day of testimony in front of the Senate, President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, faced tough questions about his work for former President George W. Bush after the September 11th attacks. My question is, what information did you have that the Bush administration's aggressive interrogation techniques were effective? At the height of the war on terror, Gorsuch was a lawyer for the Bush administration as it wrestled with controversial questions about abuse of detainees and torture. And Senator, I'm working on 12 years of passage of time here, so my memory is what it is. And it's not great on this, but my recollection... But you're very young. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Accept it. I'll take it. Thank you. Gorsuch's testimony is now complete. The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on his confirmation on April 3rd. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Every meal we eat has a history and a future. And on Next Bite, a new podcast from Chobani, we'll hear from changemakers in the food world, like Native American chef Sean Sherman. I want the next generation of kids to have better access out there, and I want to see a lot of education around why their indigenous ancestors' knowledge is so important when it comes to that connection of the world, the connection to the plants. Hear how Sean is revitalizing indigenous foods on Next Bite, wherever you get your podcasts.